First Timothy chapter 3 will be in verses 14 through 16 this morning. If you've looked down, you've probably kept up a little bit, and we've skipped now verses 8 through uh, 13, if, you, if you've been looking in your bulletin, it says that. Uh, we have decided to go to verses 14 through 16. It's not because we're afraid to hit that. It's because we want to structure our church well so that we could have deacons. And so we're going to be revisiting this after Easter, um, but just, just stay tuned for that. But now we're going to hit verses 14 uh, through 16 uh, this morning. If you've been here in the last few weeks, we have hit a lot of really intense things. I mean, we've talked about things from church discipline to false teachers to men and fe- male and female uh, biblical roles to uh, church leadership to elders, and we've seen a lot of really intense things. And so what happens often is when we go through these things, there's, there tends to be uh, a kind of question that is asked about why does this even matter? I mean, shouldn't we just be about the simple things and shouldn't we just be sharing the gospel to lost people and all those things? I agree, we should be sharing the gospel and we are sharing the gospel to lost people. It doesn't minimize these things, but I want to kind of point you to a story I can remember back and uh, when I was in college, I will never forget, um, I was in a room of, uh, went to Word of Life Bible Institute the first year right out of high school. It's in upstate New York. And we were in these big, gigantic rooms. And the dorm rooms were not like they are like at ECU um, where they're real small and there's two people in a the room. These were big rooms and there were six people to a room. And uh, that's really bad when you have a guy below you that has a sleeping problem and he has a snoring machine that, you know, keeps him from snoring loud. And, um, and so he was underneath me. But I would never forget, every night before we uh, would um, go to sleep, there was always one guy who, and his name was Dennis. He's a great guy, loves Jesus. But he would always ask really heavy, weighty theological questions. And it's like, we just want to go to sleep, man, you know, and Adam, does Adam have a belly button? I don't know if Adam has a belly button, you know, and he goes on to, what predestination, and are we made of soul and spirit? It's just like all these, and we would be annoyed, I, but we would, we would hash it out, and every, there's one guy, and I, I, would, I would act like I was asleep most of the time, but every now and then someone would bite, and you're like, come on, you just open this up, and, but there was always this one guy, a really great guy, Love the Lord, but he was always, he never participated in the conversation, but he would always say, by, by the end of the, well, the night, and it's starting to die down, and we're starting to talk circles around ourselves, and he, he would say, I don't know about all this stuff, guys. I just know that God is good, hell is hot, and Jesus saves. Good night. And that's kind of how he would deal with it. And uh, we were like, okay, we're done, right? You know, and and that sounded really spiritual. Um, and at the moment, it was like, yeah, finally, somebody just shuts us up so we can go to sleep. Um, and, and there is a point of that that's true of where a lot of those statements are, like statements like that are often well-intended. Uh, some of it is probably against uh, lazy Christianity or stagnant Christianity or heady or arrogant Christianity, which are all the things I, I too, do not like. But what is important for you to know is it is good for us to dive into deep parts and difficult parts of God's word. Because here's the thing, one-liner statements like God is good, hell is hot, Jesus saves, they sound really nice, but here's the thing, that statement will not sustain you in your darkest hour. 
that statement will not help you in suffering. It will not help you when you have children or when you get married. It will not keep you humble. It will not help you cherish Christ above all things. And so the reason why we want to be a church that does go to the harder things is because of Christian maturity. We want to see our people grow up. And we have to grow up as, as human beings, but we also have to grow up in our maturity in Christ. There's a point in scripture where I, I love the writer of Hebrews. He says this very well in Hebrews 5, verse 11 to 14. He says, about this time, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. He says, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a, what's the word? Child. But solid food for the mature and for those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Great passage. Because what the goal is, is that Christians ought to have a desire to mature in Christ. If you've ever been to a vacation spot or a hotel or maybe Myrtle Beach or something where you, you walk out and you see a, a huge pool and then you see three jacuzzis and there's always like a kiddie pool area. Isn't it creepy when you see a 45-year-old guy in the kiddie pool area and he never leaves? He just sits there, his backside, his gut sticking out, and he's just kind of, well, take the kids from swimming. No, we're not. We're going to go this way. You know, it's like, but there's something there that what you have often is in the church are grown men, grown women who just want to stay in the kiddie pool of their faith. And when suffering comes and when life happens, they cannot sustain because they don't have a mature faith. And so what Paul does in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy chapter 3 is something very interesting. He's been hitting all of these way things. He's been telling this church and writing to this church all of these really deep, practical things. And then he gets down to why it matters. And that's what I love. So start with me in verse 14, 1 Timothy chapter 3. He's going to tell us why our conduct matters and our content matters. Look with me. Verse 14 says this. I hope to come to you again, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And here's the mystery of godliness. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. And what I think is so great here is what Paul is saying here at the very beginning. He talks about, first of all, the conduct, and he talks about the content of the church and of the gospel. And so what we see here is Paul writing a letter. He says, I come to you, come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. 
It's important for you to know this. And I think one of the, the, the way that Paul phrases this kind of brings up the urgency of him writing. I want you to know that most of the New Testament are letters written to specific churches for specific reasons. Paul had an intention about why he wrote this book, and it's to correct false teaching. He's writing it to his young uh, disciple named Timothy, who's a young new pastor of this church that Paul had formerly planted in in, uh, Ephesus. And what Paul is doing is he's writing this letter with this intent. But what's so amazing, although he's writing this, and this is an ancient letter, it is a divine letter for us today. It is a letter that is inspired by God so that as Paul is writing it to the church of Ephesus, God is also writing it to the church of Greenville in that integrity. And what I love about this is that everything in the Bible is relevant and true for us today. That Paul is writing it with this urgency, and he's saying, this is the word of God. And he says, I'm writing these things to you. If you delay, you might know how one ought to believe. So first of all, we have conduct. This is the conduct of the way that he wants believers in Jesus, those who've repented of their sins, and they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how they ought to live. And he says, so that you might behold, behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of buttress of the truth. Now, what he's saying is this. This is how we are to live as the people of God. And what he does is he explains the church in three ways. And I love these incredible explanations of the church. The first thing that he says is, is the household of God. The word household is used um, elsewhere in this chapter. He uses it in verse 4. He uses it in verse 5. He uses it in verse 12. And when he uses it to describe how elders are to lead their households, to manage their households well, or deacons to manage their households well. So he's talking about a family. This is a picture that Paul often uses. He uses it in Ephesians chapter 2. He uses it in Galatians chapter 6, that the church is a family of God. It's a household of God. And I love this picture because it To me, this picture displays the gospel beautifully because it tells us that that the Father, God, the Father of all things, the creator of all things, has adopted sinners like you and me, and he's called us his children. So all around us here, we have brothers and sisters in the faith that Jesus Christ, through his blood, that the Father has adopted. And it's a beautiful picture. Because what it does is it challenges and convicts our hearts to move past consumeristic Christianity, does it not? If we're a family, we ought to live like a family. And what happens often in our culture, and even in in the South, man, we make this, the church, an event on Sunday. The church is not all about Sunday morning. I think you need to know that. The church is, uh, is gathered. It doesn't matter which day of the week you pick, by the way but it's a gathered body that do life together because it's a family. And we've condensed it down to the way that we view church is often through the lenses of what does it have for me? 
does the children's program have a retina scan for my kids? And will they come down in a slide? And will they, will they be a DNA test? So we make sure, you know, it's like all of these programs and all of these things that we blow the church up to be. But when we, the further we get into that world, the further we get away from the way that God has intended the church to be. So we try to be as stripped down as possible here at Integrity. We have a Sunday morning gathering. We have life groups that meet throughout the week because we want to see a household of faith. I have a prayer night every now and then. We do a potluck, but it's all about to get the body closer together. And man, we've grown far from that in our culture. I'll never forget when we first got started as a church. Um, we were just excited that anyone would call and be interested in our church. And at one point during the early years of our church, um, my number was the church's number. And so, you know, if the drunk guy's calling at three o'clock in the morning, has issues, and wants to talk to a pastor, he called our number and it was my number, you know? And so I've since changed that for obvious reasons. But this um, one call I got from this girl, she says, I have lots of questions. I want to, looking for a church. Great. I'd love to talk to you about that. What are your questions? She says, what do you wear? I'm like, you, what do people wear in the church or what do I wear? What do you wear? What does the pastor wear? And I'm like, um, okay, uh, boxers. Uh, like I was going through, like, where do we want me to start with this? You know, and I was sort of, well, I wear jeans and I'm not trying to make a statement with jeans. It's just comfortable and, you know, it's really not important. You know, like I was trying to show her, like, look, I'm not making a statement here because I don't want you to be mad if I have a tie or a t-shirt, you know, it doesn't really matter. Then it got down to, well, what kind of music do you have? Well, we do some hymns and we do some more modern worship songs. And then she like interrupted me in that, as I was playing music, she says, yeah, but do you do any Phil Wickham songs? I'm like, okay, now you've nailed it down to an artist, right? And at that point we did do Phil Wickham songs, but it was a point of me that was like, no, we don't. We will never do them again, right? If you love him that much, you know, like we cannot cherish an artist more than Christ. Like, come on, you don't pick a song, you don't pick a church based on what artists they play. But this is where we've gone because we've, we've condensed the church down to an event, not a household, not a Family, And I think there's something so beautiful about a family. And if you've condensed Christianity or what it means to know Christ down to an event, you have created yourself a lame hobby. And I don't want to just come just to sing a bunch of songs and hear a sermon. That's, 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 a, that's not a hobby. But what it is in the church is a life-on-life family. And so if you've not experienced that integrity, we just encourage you to take the next steps Maybe join a life group, be known by people so that you can, they can know you and pray for you and love you and walk alongside of you in the gospel. I mean, our life groups are designed a certain way where we don't just do Bible studies because it seems like it could be programmatic if you just do that. So we do, sometimes we do meal nights and sometimes we just pray together. I mean, we, a couple weeks ago, mine, we just, we played games. I, you know, I schooled everybody in poker. I mean, I'm a pastor who plays poker, all right? Um, not for money, that's wrong. Um, but, uh, but we did it, we would do it. And it was, it's fun because we're doing life on life. And something happened in my life group recently that I just wanna share about, it was incredible. Um, we have in our group a really diverse group. And what, what our goal is in our life groups is we want our life groups to look like micro versions of what a corporate gathering would be. So we don't say like women over here and guys over here and college students here. We just say anybody can come to any group because there's something beautiful about 
a married couple and a single couple or a single person and a married. There's something so beautiful about this picture. And what I saw is when, when ours split up, we do, um, we, we do prayer nights where our group splits up in half, where ladies go in one room, guys go in there, and we just share about our lives and we pray for each other. And I will never forget this young guy in his, in his 20s was sharing about struggles that he was having. And then I have in my group three retired guys. And the one, one of the retired guys began to share about his struggle. And you know what's interesting about that? The guy in his 20s and the retired guy in his 60s had a very similar struggle. And we just began to pray. And there was some encouragement around that to where the younger guy saw, well, I'm probably still going to struggle with this, but I could still walk with God. And then the older gentleman looked at this younger guy and was encouraged because this younger guy wanted to pursue Christ more and love Christ with deep passion and wanted to make Christ above all in his life. And we see this picture because it's a household of faith. It's believers coming together. So if you're over 40 here in this room, I don't know if you know this, but you're a minority. Sorry, you are. But we don't want it to be that way. We don't. We don't want it to be where it's just a bunch of young college students and young professionals. Although we're glad that we have a young church. I think part of the reason why I have a young church is because I am 34 years old. And most of the time, a church planter reaches people 10 years older or 10 years younger. And I look like I'm 25 when I have my beard short, right? And so that puts us at 15 and 35, right? (laughs) And so the goal is we're not trying to be young. We want to be uh, diverse in our age, because we think it's something so beautifully practical about that. I and mean, here's the thing. If you are over 40, there is a major need for you. Here's why. If, you're, if we're brothers and sisters that the gospel calls us to, if, if we are a household, we're brothers and sisters, that means you're kind of the same age anyway. So you can be encouraged in that. If you want to feel young, you can be here because we're all brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter, right? But there's also something so grand about our younger church gleaning from your experience in life. There's also something that will encourage you by looking at all of these young people love Jesus with great, deep, profound passion. And so I love this church because I see the household work very well here. I see family happen very well here. And so we encourage you to to be a part of family. So that's what Paul mentions here. He says, It's the household of God, but it's also a church of the living God. This phrase helps us understand that the church isn't just a gathering, but it is a gathering. You you tracking with that? The the, the word church actually means ecclesia. I had a buddy of mine who was a church planter. He named his church Ecclesia Church. I was like, let me get this straight. Your name, the name of your church is Church Church, Right? But it's a good name because it's, it's about the gathering of people, the gathering. And so this phrase that it comes off of, it's the church of the living God. This phrase was used in the Old Testament to basically describe how and basically discount and emphasize the deadness of idols. He's saying this is the church where we worship the only God, the living God. I want you to think about that and take that in for a moment. The body of Christ 
is the only place where you can worship God, the true God. Everything else is dead. He says it's the church of the living God. This phrase, living God, is is used about 15 times in the New Testament, and it's to help us remember that Christ is risen and that Christ is enough. And so there's a great value for believers to come together and worship a living God. I love the great reformer Martin Luther. He says on this topic, he says, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire, fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. It, it, it echoes what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so what he's saying is this is a household of faith, but it's the church of the living God where this household that's scattered throughout the week comes together and gathers together as the body of Christ to worship the true and an awesome God that we serve and that we love. And that when, when we do that, we don't just do that to just do it because there's not a lot of space or we, we just don't want to do it at home. We do it so that we would stir one another up in love and in good works. So when we sing corporately, we sing so that we would hear each other's voices. We'd be encouraged by the sounds of our voices that we would stir up our affections for God. When we do things corporately, when we do like this big Serve Greenville event that we did a few weeks ago, we just saw the video highlights of it. It was an incredible event. Church was a major part of that. Loved it. And what's so beautiful about that is when we do that together, we're stirring up a desire to do good works. And I, I love those events that we do. We do them throughout the year. We, our life groups take part of them. And what's so interesting about them, I don't, I don't know what, who is affected more by them, the people that we serve or us serving. And I keep going back to it because most of the time it's us serving. Because what happens is when we work alongside of each other and we're, we're doing life together as we're serving and loving our city together, what I call it is it's like scrimmage. It's like us practicing what we should be doing for our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates each day. And so when we come back from an event like that and we're serving and loving our city, we come back and we're saying, you know, I need to go share the gospel with my neighbor now. I need to go share the gospel with my friend who's, man, who's really struggling. Because what it does is the body of Christ that we're looking at one another and we're watching, we're growing, and we're gleaning from one another and we're, we're practically passionate then about loving God more and loving others more. And so he calls it the bride of Christ. And I love it because what you have in our culture is that our culture is highly individualistic and grossly independent. We're not, we're not dependent on anyone. And, it, and it's trickled its way into the church by a catchy phrase that says, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I love that statement. That is a true statement. 
You do have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in that you belong to Jesus because he has saved you. Absolutely. It is personal in that way. But your relationship with God ain't that personal because it affects everything else. It affects the people around you. It affects the people in your family. It affects the people in your workplace. It affects the people in this body. So it's not that personal. You are actually, as a person in the church, dependent on each other. And people depend on you because you're a part of the church of the living God. And so it's very interesting when I meet people and they'll say things like, well, I love Jesus but I hate the church, right? That is like saying, Ben, you're a really awesome guy. You wear green on St. Patty's Day. Got that Irish blood in you, right? You're a Tar Heel fan. You drive a Buick. Love people who have Buicks. Want to get to know you more. And then say, but your wife is a handful Right? She didn't wear green on St. Patty's Day, right? She didn't care about the Tar Heels. And I don't really like your wife. Okay, back up for a second. Not only would we not be friends, but you would get the wrath of red hair, ghetto Rocky Mount, <laughs> Ben Tugwell coming after you, right? And we're not going to be friends at that point. We're going to be, I'm going to pull out the pocket knife on you, right? I'm going to go old school, you know, swing, you know? It's not going to go well because, man, I love my wife. We are one flesh, as Scripture calls it. And so there's no separation between Jesus and his bride because Jesus died for his bride. He gave his life for that. And so, look, I understand totally get it. There's people in this room that have been burned by the church. But that definition of the church is probably not really the church. Because here's, here's the thing. Growing up, the, the problems that I saw in church were people who were not believers, but were people who thought they were believers, but were wolves in the church. That is not the church. The church is not unbelievers. The church are repentant believers. So oftentimes the problems that we see in churches are not really the church. It's wolves. It's people who think they're Christians and they're not. They're people that are coming in to control the church, to poison the content of the gospel, to make you think that the issue is the church. The issue is with sinners in the church that have not been redeemed by the gospel. And I'm not saying, look, Christians are perfect, no way. But I'm saying the issue is not... The church, the issue, the churches are not being consistent with teaching the gospel and allowing people to join that are not believers. So this is a body, it's the bride of Christ, it's the household, it's the living God. But he also says, it's the pillar and buttress of the truth. He's saying, Paul is saying that the church is where truth is found. He uses two words. He uses pillars and buttress of truth. These are architectural terms to show the structure of the church. 
Buttress of truth is not a word that we use regularly, I understand. It's a very strange word, buttress, right? But what it is, it's about foundation, an unshakable, unmovable foundation. And its pillars are what's holding it up. It's beautifying. It's making it attractive. It's making it heralded and high. And he's saying that the church should herald truth, but it should be unmovable and unshakable in how we present the truth. If you look in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father that the Father might sanctify the church in truth. And he says, your word is true. And I think there's something so profound that the church is responsible for proclaiming truth. I love um, copy of the older Bible. It's written in the, is, uh, translated in the 17th century. It's called the Geneva Bible. And the front of it has a preface. It, 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 it prefaces the Bible like this. And I have the exact quote, and I love this quote about the Bible. It says, the Bible is the light to our past, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and our sword against Satan, the school of wisdom, the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. That's what the Bible is. It's a key it's a light, it's a comfort, it's a shield, it's a sword, it's a mirror where we might see him. And it's, it's this beautiful picture because it's saying the church is responsible for upholding, heralding the word of God because the word of God ultimately points us to Jesus. This is where church is found. And it's very interesting in our culture, we live in a culture that does not have absolute truth. Truth is relative. It's based on how you feel. It's the emotions you have behind it. Relativists would argue that it's as if a God is on top of a mountain and we all try to find our own ways, wherever, however we feel, whatever feels like it works for us. And as long as we get there to the top, that's all that matters. And they say truth is relative. No one believes that. I have to ask them, are you absolutely sure there's no absolute truth, right? Some of y'all did not get that. They can't say absolutely because they would make an absolute statement at that point, right? No one believes that. And so we're living in a culture that is very inconsistent when it comes to what truth is. And what Paul says about the church is the church is responsible for heralding this truth to be an unmovable object, to be a pillar that holds up what truth is. And so it matters what we teach, is it not? It matters what we teach. If we are responsible for how well we explain this, then what he's saying matters. If this is the only place where truth is found, is what Paul is saying, this is where the truth is found in the body of Christ and how well we do this should be something that is primary to us. This is where truth is found. And then he ties it in beautifully. So we see this is, the con- this is how we are to conduct ourselves as believers. 
We're the church of the living God. We're the household. We are the pillar. But he also says the content. He also talks about the content. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It says manifested in the flesh. What does that mean? It says incarnation, that Jesus Christ was the God of the universe. He was before creation. He came into human history in the form of a man. And he humbled himself in this form and he lived a perfect sinless life. He was born of a virgin and he died on the cross for our sins in our place. Then it says he was vindicated by the spirit. It means the spirit of God did not allow him to stay in the ground. The spirit of God rose him from the grave and proves, validates what he did on the cross was true. That he conquered the penalty of Satan, sin, and death, and he was seen by the angels. Angels saw, foretold that Christ would come, and when he did come, they said, glory to God in the highest. Not only that, but it's proclaimed among the nations. Jesus lived a very obscure life. He died in his 30s. But what's interesting about that is he never traveled very far. If you look at a map of where Jesus traveled, it's not very far. But now we today sit here and we praise his name. And there's no, there's no one figure in human history that there's not more songs written about or books written about. There's no name mentioned and no, no name more popular. That this obscure person would be proclaimed among the nations. And it says that we would believed on in the word, taken up in glory, which means that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that this guy is Lord. And he now seated at the right hand of the Father after he was taken up in glory and he is sovereign and king over all. And what Paul does here is he shows us this to say, This is what is at stake. The saving message of Jesus Christ can be muddied, watered down, or dumbed down if we fail to teach this well. That's what's at stake. So why does it matter? This is what is at stake. And Paul's saying, let us not move away from the truth of Scripture and risk the content of the glorious gospel. And so we see the conduct of believers. We must be people of God. We must be a household of faith. We must be the church of the living God. We must be a pillar of truth. And we must preserve the content of this beautiful gospel. So my question is this, do you love the gospel? Do you believe in Jesus, that he died in your place, that he rose from the grave? And if you repent of your sins and you believe in him as the only God, you could have eternal life. Do you believe in him? And if you do, how do you see the body of Christ? 
Are you a part of the body of Christ? Are you a household? Of, do you see it as a household of God? Of the church of the living God? Is that how you view his bride? Do you see the value of holding up the truth of scripture? So my questions are just very simple. Do you love the gospel? Do you love his church? Do you love his word? And so let us be, this is my prayer, that we would be a household of faith, that we would be the church of the living God and we would be a pillar and buttress of truth that we might preserve and protect the content of his glorious gospel. Let, us, let that be our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us this morning?